לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. still on Long Island okay with car trouble but one of these days we promise you all of our viewers all of our listeners we're gonna do this in person we're gonna all be the three the three of us will be in one place together and it'll be a big simcha a simcha for all our viewers the whole community the whole Parsha talk community and you can write to us at Parsha talk p-a-r-a-s-h-a-t-a-l-k at gmail.com we have a great Parsha, an amazing Parsha, Parsha Bo. This picks up in the Exodus story, as we're all familiar with it, with plagues 8, 9, and 10, which they are Arba, Choshech, and Makat Bechorot. We don't have to talk about Arba and Choshech, locusts and darkness, even though there's so much to talk about, but we want to get to Makat Bechorot, because let's face it, it's the uh, most interesting of all the plagues, okay? <laughs> Would you concur with that, Barry? Well, I would concur because I'm not a firstborn. Um, so I was protected by birth order. Um, I'm not a firstborn either. Jeremy, are you a firstborn? Yes, I go. am. So were you redeemed? No, he's a Cohen. Cohen. That's right, you're a Cohen. We, we'll have to he is the, He actually is the redeemer. Little so did the Beta Mikdash, I still belong to the Beta Mikdash. My God, one day someone, do you, do you, you've done a Pijona Ben, you've done, you've, you've taken monetary compensation in lieu of firstborns. I have. What an amazing thing. Okay, so we're going to pick it up with chapter 11, verse 8, which says, I'm going to give you one more. going to give you one more. I love this. This nobody comments on this. The parsh, the parshanut is pretty, pretty um, quiet on this verse. I think it's actually a very significant verse. It's it's kind of setting everyone up to say, and setting Moses up. You need to be prepared for this. You need to be prepared yourself, and you need to prepare the people, and you need to prepare Pharaoh. And I think part of what leadership demands is. Preparation. A leader, a great leader, has to prepare the people for what is going to happen. And I'm thinking of, of two specific instances, Churchill's blood, tears, toils, and sweat speech, which effectively was one of the great speeches preparing his people for the Second World War. FDR's, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, which is a way of anticipating, you know, fr- you know, my fellow Americans, we have a lot to go through in the next little while. And 
preparation is key to the role of the leader. And we see this, I think Moses is doing a good job here preparing the people. Barry, you want to just wait? Yeah, in? well, I think what the verse highlights, though, is that God is the true leader because it refocuses our attention to the real time in which the plagues unfold. And we're so used to reading the story in the Torah that we never think that the 10 plagues is a structure that was not known to them until they actually unfold it. So when God tells Moses there's going to be one more plague, he's telling Moses the time has come, that this is the end of the process and redemption is at hand. Up until then, Moses had no idea, I don't think, when this was all going to end or how it was going to end. He knew what God had promised. He was do, going to do all these signs and wonders. And God keeps doing them. And now God said, Ganug, first Yiddish reference in the Torah. God spoke Yiddish? Absolutely. So, so, so Moses obviously at this point has no idea of, let's say, the Red Sea coming up. You know, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it's always good to try and imagine the real life situation that the the story depicts. So in real because, time, Moshe is, is being told, this is it. This is this Yeah. Is so it's actually God preparing Moses so that Moses can then prepare the people. You know, but there was, there was just one little thing that comes before that, which which I don't disagree with what you said at all. But the last pasuk in, a, in, in chapter 10 is Pharaoh says, that's it. You're never going to see me again. If you if you if you see me again, you're going to die. And Moses says, uh, You spoke correctly. I will never see your face again. And then God says, Then there's one more plague. So, I mean, it's just a narrative little moment of fun. You know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh gives Moses this threat and Moses says, you know, well said, you're never going to see me again. And we know dot, 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 because you're going to die. Right. And so I, this is a, the next few verses are kind of a puzzle because chapter 11, verse four says, um, well, let's, before we get to that, let's let's just see what, what Moshe has to say to the people. Moses prepares the people and says, let every man go to his neighbor and every woman go to her neighbor. Uh, and you will ask for silver and gold objects. And so the, the, the instruction that people are going as a way of preparation was that they should ask for gold and silver from their neighbors. I think that's, that's really odd. The next part is actually even more odd, which is that God, that, that God will make the Egyptians dispose, uh, feel disposed, they will dispose them nicely. Feel well disposed to them. Well disposed to them. And Moses was great, in the land of Egypt, so it kind of says that they respect him. They they have, they they um, they have a grudging respect for this man, right? What do you make of, of this? I have I, I, maybe I'll, I'll give you my comment and see if you react to that. Which is that this is important on the aspect of saying that there there's really no bitterness between. Israel and Egypt, 
in contrast to the way we regard Ammonites and Moabites who treated us with cruelty, uh, we actually have to be benevolent to Egyptians. The Torah does tell us we shall not abhor Egyptians later on in the book of Dvarim. But with regard to Moabites and Ammonites, we can't let them into the people because they were cruel to us. So we're, our problem is not against Egyptians. The Torah's problem is against Pharaoh. And it's God versus Pharaoh and not Egypt versus Israel, Israel versus Egypt. That's number one. Number two is we have to explain how they get gold and silver so that they can build the Mishkan later. And they can't get that stuff through ill, uh, you know, by, by, by theft or by any other uh, means. They have to get it legitimately. It has to be theirs. And therefore, it's a gift to them. I think as difficult as it is for some to read it this way, this moment is a moment of gifting. They're asking the Egyptians, you know, like, I'm sure we get solicited, all, please give us a gift. We would like to get a gift from you. And the gift is gold and silver, so that they have what they, what they need for making the Mishkan. And the third thing is, this goes back all the way to the promise that God gave to Abraham at the beginning, which is that you will go out, you will leave Egypt with a lot of property. It doesn't make sense any, any way else to understand this, they have to, they're slaves, they have nothing, they barely have the clothes on their back. You know, they barely have a domus, they have no property, they have no wealth of, what, of, of, of any sizable quantity. Um, so they go out with this and they have to get it some way. I don't know if you have a reaction to that, go ahead. Well, it provides a nice bookend to the descent into Egypt because that was a civil affair, meaning that people behaved civilly. And here at the very end, the... Israelites' acquisition of the Egyptian property is not plunder, which one would expect, right? They're finally leaving after two or 400 years of slavery. They must feel entitled in some way to take whatever they can. And yet the last thing that we see is a conversation that's intimated that they're going to have so that the Israelites can leave freely and the, with, in the sense, the blessing of the Egyptians who give them the wherewithal with which they will leave. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, in, in the final moment between uh, Pharaoh and Moses, which comes later in the Parsha, that, that Pharaoh actually wants the blessing and Moses basically, you know, pushes it. But that's reminiscent of the story of Yaakov and Pharaoh indeed, as well. Indeed, uh, Yaakov and, and, uh, and the angel, the wrestling uh, uh, companion there. I mean, it's, you know, in terms of one population living inside another population, I think it's very unusual that they would have a, at least a, a, a set of relationships that did not consist of enmity. When you compare this, for example, to Eastern European Jews who live in a sea of, you know, non-Jewish people who, who despise them and who actively collaborate against them in their destruction, it's 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 quite stunning. It's quite star. I, I you know teaching this teaching this uh, passage. Um, uh, I, I made the comparison uh, to let's say the the massacre of of the Kelch Jews after the war. These 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 Jews came back to Kelch in Poland, and the and the people of the town basically got up and, and committed a pogrom, which resulted in Jews basically saying, there's no future for us here, we're leaving, we're leaving. And they left in, in, in by the hundreds of thousands. But, you know, the, the survivors who, were, who, who came back to their little towns 
said, there's no future for us. This, the, the Exodus story is not that story. And the Exodus story can't be read, in my opinion, with later Jewish history superimposed on it. I don't know. I mean, this is something it, that you it think It can about. be or it cannot be? I, uh, I think it's a mistake to do that. I think, I think the Exodus story stands on its own. And we have a problem today. Maybe we, me, I, we, you know, certain, when, you know, immersed as we are in the experience of the 20th century, you know, it's hard, not, it's hard to view the, our, our biblical history without the, the layers and layers of overlay of, of, of both the Holocaust and centuries of persecution. I think, I think you're really on, on target about um, uh, the, the way the story gets, gets played out and the Egyptians' reactions. Um, as you said in, in Deuteronomy, it says, Lotita um, ev uh, mitzri, you, you can't hate an Edomite ki achichahu. Esau's people, the Edomites, they are your brethren. Lotita ev mitzri ki ger hayita be'artso. You have to, you can't hate the Egyptians because you were a stranger in their land. At one level, it seems like the point of that is to say, Okay, I know that they abused you and, and slavery was terrible. Um, but before that, uh, you were starving to death in a famine. They brought you in and enabled you to thrive for a while. Right. So one way I read that is read the, the Deuteronomy passages to say that, you know, you, you can't let or one ought not let the, the negative parts of a relationship totally blot out the positive parts. And Egyptians, you know, there's the Egyptians of the beginning of Exodus, but there's also the Egyptians of the end of, of Breshit who, you know, come through for you. So maybe there's some, maybe there's something there, but it is also true that you, and you brought this up in a great way. Um, this, this passage of them walking out with Rechush Gadol, with great, great abundance as, as God had promised initially foreshadows the building of the Mishkan and everybody, you know, reads, reads, you know, Exodus chapter 25 and on where they build this, these, these, Ragtag slaves, they run into the desert, they're escaping Egypt. Where in the world do they have silver and gold and copper and, and all the linen and all the color stuff? Where do they get all that stuff? Well, they, they got it from Egypt. So these passages sort of over uh, foreshadow those. We have a concept in Halakha of mitzvah ba'aba avera, meaning a, a, a mitzvah accomplished by unethical or, or sinful means. Dot, dot, dot. You can't do that. You can't. The classical example is you can't steal a lulav and then do the mitzvah of shaking the lulav. It has to be, you know, use good means for good ends. And I think that we, um, not just not just we modern commentators or we modern readers of the Torah, but I think classical ones too, eh, you know, it's a little sticky, this this bit about um, we're going to, uh, we're going to um, walk out of Egypt with all their stuff. And so the, the commentators give lots of, of uh, explanations that perhaps take a little bit off the edge. So for example, um, the word vayishal'u could mean, um, the word the word lish'ol in biblical Hebrew can mean borrow. And so the commentators work fairly hard to say, here it doesn't mean borrow, elsewhere it means borrow, here it just means request, it's a gift, it's not a loan. Because if it were a loan, and the Egyptians were expecting that stuff back, then the whole Mishkan would be mitzvah, the whole mitzvah would be, would be built with, with, uh, with ill-gotten stuff. And that doesn't appear right. 
And, and the, the, the other thing which I think is really relevant is, um, w- which I think takes, takes any nasty edge off of them walking out of Egypt with all the stuff, is that the Egyptians use their labor for free for all these years, and they owe them money. They owe them, they owe them their wages. They owe them compensation. Uh, you know, by the way, if anybody wants to, to dig into your back pocket for this one, I mean, you know, in America right now, where we have conversations about whether, whether the descendants of African slaves uh, deserve, deserve uh, uh, reparations. Uh, reparations, if one wanted to make an argument like this, this would not be a bad set of, of biblical verses to say, if you've enslaved people, when it's time to go free, you got to compensate Right, except for the practicality of it, which would be completely, you know, mind-boggling. Okay, so so what we have here, I think, I think what the value of this, and it's only a couple of psukim, but it it puts a certain valence or puts a certain frame around the whole experience. In that, I think the the bottom line is we don't relate to the event as an event against Egyptians. It's it's clearly designed as an event that pits Pharaoh against God, and Judaism commemorates it as such through through the Korban Pesach early on, and of course through Pesach. Very I, I think we have to add a couple of things here, and you know, your remarks led me to think again what the real problem with the Exodus is, how do we know where the story actually ends? Is it at Kriyat Yamsuf? Is it at the entrance to the land of Israel in the book of Joshua? And we often overlook the answer that Sefer Shemot gives, which is at the end of the Exodus story is the building of the Mishkan. Yeah. And the Mishkan, by virtue of the fact that all the material derived from Egypt is inextricably linked to our ancestors' Egyptian experience. Okay. So and it's good to remember that, I think. Let's move to the next scene in the in the parsha, which which already shift. You got you see in, in the beginning of chapter twelve, you get a sense that the whole tone of the book is now shifting because this is really the first mitzvah that is given to the Jewish people. Basically, the designation of this month, meaning the month of Nisan, the month of liberation, as the head of the months, and the Israelites are to take ish. Se levet avot, se lebayit, each man household figure, that is to say, most likely head of household, is to take a sheep for the household, se lebayit. And so, to make a long story short, they're supposed to slaughter the lamb at dusk, put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, and they are to roast the lamb uh, throughout the night because they understand that at that night, during that night, sometime in the middle of the night, uh, the destroyer will go about through the land of Egypt and slaughter the firstborn Egyptians. And that is when they are to prepare for the exodus. They are to sit down at this meal, um, ready to go, basically. Uh, And they are to eat the meal with unleavened bread and on bitter herbs. And none of that happens, is what I'm saying. So first we want to go to the the architecture of the evening. And I want to say, I want you to react to to an interpretation of the blood on the doorpost. We normally think of the blood on the doorpost as the sign, and that's what the Torah says, it's the sign for God, that God is going to see the houses and pass over them. But I, I want to suggest that 
the blood on the doorpost and the head of household, that there's an amazing transformation that's happening here, that each head of household becomes, in air quotes, a Kohen, for a temporary Kohen, a, a priest, by slaughtering, by having the privilege of slaughtering, and that in a normal sacrifice, as we'll read copiously in the book of Vayikra, it's taking the blood and putting it on an altar. There's no altar. There's no nothing. So where is he going to put it? He's going to put it on the prominent place of his domicile, which is the entrance, the doorway, and the lintel. And by doing that, he is consecrating the household. And I want to say he's making the household into a life zone. It's like, you know, you know, it's like giving a radiance bing, to, the, to, the, to the household. And it's like, you know, God has the view from 10,000 feet, you know, that each household that has the blood on their, the doorpost is somehow radiating life force to the universe. And God knows to pass over that household because that's a zone where no death will enter. And the, the punchline here is that when... It's in the middle of the night, at the end of chapter 12, the, the destroyer comes out, and Pharaoh, by a kampor Laila, Pharaoh is, uh, gets up in the middle of the night, there's a great cry in Egypt, there is no household that is without a dead body. That's a stunning, stunning verse. There's death, death everywhere. And Israel is life, life everywhere. I think, I mean, I want you to react to that. Give me, give, give me a score here. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a, it's a 9.5, except for the part where you think they didn't actually do the Korban Pesach. Okay, so, so take, take, give me your best shot. Give me your best shot. No, I mean, uh, first of all, chapter 12, verse 29, the children of Israel did everything that God commanded Moses and Aaron. Yes, they did. So I, th I think that the uh, I think that that stuff, all that stuff, does happen. They do eat the meal, and they do wait it out, wait out the night. It's Leil Shemurim. It's the night of protection, and these things uh, get executed. And that's what I'm going to. Uh, we can argue that better when we talk about the matzot. But I do think that. that the, no, I'm saying they didn't eat the meal. In the picture, the way that this unfolds in real time, Barry, real time. Okay, so I think that what Jeremy wanted to say is that the chapter here is actually quite complicated. And we have read it many times, and we read it every year a couple of times. It's going to be part of the special Parsha of uh, Parsha HaChodesh, but right before Pesach. And the details don't quite fit together, which I think is why Jeremy and Elliot have such differing interpretations as to what actually happened, because I don't think that Elliot has completely made up his interpretation, although I have to agree with, with Jeremy that they had to eat the Korban Pesach because you can't bring a sacrifice that you don't eat from, as you describe it, as a Zevach Shlamim. That is the one requirement, is that you have to eat it. But I want to go back to something you said about the function of the blood. And when they put the blood over the... Um, the lintel, the lintel, and the um, and the doorpost. They are in effect making their house into the Beta Mikdash. Yeah, awesome. it is the holy place where God's presence can enter. 
And that's a very powerful symbol because it's quite democratic. Every household in Israel can become the place where God enters. I like well, the the uh, first of all, I think that the the marking of the blood. I mean, any any really good poetic symbol um, has not one but multiple meanings. I mean, this is this is that's what that's what makes something poetry, and this is just so incredibly rich. Um, you know that uh, that that you know the line in Ezekiel about God metaphorically finding the baby Israel, uh, this little baby. Uh, God says, you know, in your blood, and blood in Hebrew is a plural word, like like uh, deer or fish, or I guess that's in English, a singular, singular word. Um, all these things in, in Hebrew are plural words. So blood is a plural word, and the, the great rabbinic midrash is, in your bloods live, dam pesach v'dam milah, dam brit, that the marking of this covenantal ritual, which is about flesh and blood and the marking of the, the male male infant, which is about flesh and blood. Um, it, it's that near death experience that produces life. And that's, that's why this is such a, a powerful moment. You can imagine their houses. And I love what you guys said about the application of the blood as making the house into the altar. That's what one does the, the pouring out the blood of any sacrifice on the altar, that's what happened in the temple. That's how the temple is cleansed at, um, at Yom Kippur. That's how the, the, with the sprinkling of the blood, that's how the atonement offerings, the chatat, all of the, those purification offerings, it's the application of blood to the, to the altar. And so here too, you have to ask, there's some, there's some kind of purification thing that's going on. I would say it's like an escape that Egypt... Egypt is parsed in the tradition as, as being, you know, 49 gates of Tum'ah. It's, it's, it's a place of dark magic and idol worship. It's a place of abuse. It's a place of dead, you know, babies thrown into the, into the Nile River. And we want to make it a place of life. And so this, there's a purification thing that is going on with the application of the blood, the blood here. And it provides a good counterpoint to the first plague, which brought death to the Nile, the blood, and here the blood brings life to the Israelites. Indeed. And there's also birth going on too. And, and many people have remarked that that you know this is this is the blood of childbirth, also as in the birth of the nation. But permit well, the, the walking through walking through a doorway Indeed. with and 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 it also says, by the way, is the two side points and the top, but it also says with the Dam Asher Basaf, Saf might mean a, bar, a, a a basin, like they've got the blood in a basin, and so they do, do, you know, take the, whatever, the azov, the hyssop, and they use it like a paintbrush. But saf also means the, the what's that called? The threshold. the threshold. So you could imagine that the whole door, both side posts, the top point and the bottom point are covered in blood. It's a birth canal, and they're entering, they're leaving, you know, from this, uh, from this Egyptian... You, you don't really want to say womb where they're born, although maybe it is. Maybe they've gestated as a people in, under this condition of slavery, but they are in all events, they're going to go out uh, like, like human birth is bloody. They're going to go out through this bloody, bloody canal and they're going to enter the world and they're going to have to grow up and live in it. It's like you said, look, they're, 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 it's a, it's a multivalent, multivocal symbol. It can mean all of these things at the same time. 
And, and you know, that's what, that's what ritual and that's what religion does. Religion has to kind of make so many different access points for meaning so that a whole coalition of people can join together and, and maintain it. So I just want to go back for a second, permit me to, you know, make one, one kind of um, debate on this Korban Zemach, that the, the, the Korban Pesach, the, that meal... So I, I, I read this and say that they didn't eat it because they, they waited the following morning to bake the unleavened bread. The, the dough was still unleavened. That's the miracle. The miracle of the dough was that it remained unleavened until the following morning, which is a, a text that we read in this, in this Parsha. And then effectively, reading it this way, they, they leave the, 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 the sheep, they leave it, the carcass on the spit. It, it gets burned completely. And it's, it's supposed to be an edible offering, but because they don't eat it, it emerges as an olah, which is the highest ranking offering. So many things are happening here simultaneously. One is they're supposed to sit down and eat a feast of joy and thanksgiving and possibly protection. It doesn't happen that way. They leave it on the spit and therefore it becomes an olah, it's totally consumed, it, it reaches the highest rung of holiness in the scheme of sacrifices, they leave it there. Let's not forget that sheep, animals, altogether, you know, they're abhorrent to Egyptians, they're leaving all of that in Egypt, they're going out on an empty stomach and they're not eating till the following morning, and they're compliant in the whole scene which is so unusual for our very, very, you know, we have a docile and compliant people, the Jewish people. Right? We always, everybody always follows and they, and they don't complain. Everybody ever. does whatever they ask. You know, it's no, nobody, we're, we're so pliable, we're so agreeable. Well, it's good that things yeah. haven't changed. Yeah, but, I, but I'm going to disagree with you about this for two reasons, or at least two, maybe, maybe more. The fact, and, and I will, Cop to the point, as, as Barry alluded to before, that there are there are some, you know, um, stitchy spots in this in this thing where it seems like something may be being told out of order, um, and the meaning of matzot uh, that that you know it, it appears to be like uh, it doesn't fit all that well in the meaning of the, that they leave out here. Uh, Carrying their carrying the dough and carrying the kneading troughs, which didn't rise, and they have to take it out into the desert. I, I, I concede that it's a little it's a little funky in terms of narrative, but I would just say two things. First of all, um, the fact that they went into the desert without a store of food means that they had to cook matzah. It does not mean that they did not have matzah the night before. It just means that the future amount of food is going to be with the matzah. But the second thing is. And this is to get a little bit halachic. You're supposed to eat the Korban Pesach that night. It wouldn't become an olah. It would become notar. It would become sacrifice that you misapplied, that you mistreated, and you wasted. And I, I find, I think that, this, that the idea of Korban Pesach is communal, covenantal meal for all the reasons that we said, the way we experience it now in our own version of the Pesach Seder. Um, 
the the point is that communion of human communion, that connection with God. God eats part of it in the form of, so to speak, in the form of the aroma, and humans eat their part in forms of the flesh. And that's where they all come together. I think they do that successfully. Otherwise, it's just a waste. And in fact, it's pro not just a waste like bummer, too bad they wasted it. No, no, it's a prohibited waste. It's low to boker. Don't leave it until the morning. By your system, they they weren't they weren't compliant. They actually were uh, disobedient. No, I, I think Elliot wants to say that they were pre-halachic. Okay, that might be true too. I, I want my sheep, and I want to eat it too. <laughs> you want to have your sheep and eat it too. <laughs> I want to have my sheep and eat it too. Okay. Well, all right. So we disagree on that, and I, you know, I think there there is compelling case to be made in both directions. Although I would say, you know, the 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 thing that that perhaps you need to answer is. So what is you're saying that they they the the dough that they baked the following day kilo chametz that wasn't yet leavened that was leftover dough. Yeah, that'd be fine. Yeah. I say it's the whole dough. it's the whole dough, and they went out on an empty stomach, and it makes for me it makes a stronger story. It makes for okay, so the people are look, and it's what it says, it's l'shivcho shel bnei Yisrael. It's the glory, the joy, the beauty of B'nai Yisrael. Look, here's the moment that they are listening. They're doing. And there are only two moments like this in the entire Torah. This moment and Maman Har Sinai. Every single other time, they're complaining. And, and the two pivotal moments of, of Torah, they're, they're behaving the way God wants them. I think that, I mean, I get a lot of joy out of that. I think that's what makes this a... A powerful story. I mean, and, and of course, the fact that we could disagree on that makes it even more powerful. So. That's for sure. All right, the final, the final sentence, which is so the the parsha ends with Kadesh li kol b'chor. So Jeremy, as a first, as the resident firstborn here, you know, you want to talk to us for two seconds about what what the role, what the place, what the prerogative of the firstborn is, and why that belonged to God, and and just you know, what did we do to correct that? <laughs> That's really interesting, you know. The uh, it, it, apparently in ancient society, you know, great store is set by the firstborn, um, and and it, like it's probably the people thought, you know, as as, as Jacob says to Reuven, "Yeter seit yeter az." You know, you're my firstborn, which means you are the strongest, and you just have like the best the best genetic dose or whatever one one might say, um, and Pharaoh symbolizes that kind of natural primogeniture. Uh, so to speak, Pharaoh is a firstborn. We, 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 we don't actually know what Pharaoh's birth family is like, but that's okay. Uh, he, he seems to be like the Egyptian super duper firstborn character and every family has one. Uh, but Israel is, uh, is, is so to speak God's firstborn. Now, of course, in reality, I, I don't, I don't, religiously speaking, relate to God who loves the Jewish people more than other people. I relate to God having special relationships with all, with all of the world's families, but um, Israel in this, in this story is portrayed as a special relationship with God. You know, Israel is my firstborn, God says to Pharaoh, and it's not like that system that you have um, where, where it's yeter seitve yeter az, it's kind of a physical power, um, in 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 Exodus 13, as you mentioned, it's Kadesh Kol B'chor, 
Um, you should sanctify me every firstborn animal, every firstborn human being. Um, some of those will go. Some of those will go uh, to uh, be sacrificial animal. Some of those will go. Uh, will be killed. Actually, if, the, if it's a non-sacrificial animal, ve'arafto, you chop off the back of his neck, uh, and you should redeem and pidyon haben your firstborn human children. Uh, but I actually think you know we were joking before about uh, about Kohen and Levi and and everything. You know, the the Jewish tradition has actually done something kind of interesting in all of our stories where the secondborn supplants the firstborn. Uh, where the secondborn child actually proves to be kind of morally superior to the firstborn, um, and and it's really the second who takes the leadership role, not the first. I, I think that there's something going on where the where the Torah is saying external power is uh, is a little um, you know it's apt to delude you. You're apt to think that the exterior physical power is is the most important thing, and firstborn is the most important thing. Actually. It's the moral supplanting of firstborn power. And, and in, in the book of Numbers, uh, this is a fairly elaborate thing where all the firstborns get replaced in the service of, uh, of the temple with the Levite, the Levite tribe. Yeah. Um, so I think the Torah, while yes, it does give this, this mitzvah of the firstborns have a special sanctity and it's the replacement, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh is the bad firstborn, Israel is the good firstborn. I actually think that the overall sweep of biblical religion is suspicious of firstborns and thinks that um, thinks that you know secondborns actually sometimes have something uh, special that the that the apparently powerful firstborns don't have. Well, as a secondborn, I like that. As a youngest, I like that too. Okay. <laughs> and anyway, we, we're, we're way over our time. And, and uh, as you can see, there's just so much to talk about with every amazing Parsha. But uh, we are especially thankful to all of the people that have joined us to watch this, to listen to this. We really, really appreciate your comments and the things that you say to us personally and write to us. We encourage you to do so. We look forward to being with you again on the next edition of Parsha Dr. Time, everyone. So much love.